everybody welcome to episode 37 where i'm interviewing crystal young crystal is a real estate professional in the state of new york for legal representation speaking events panels first-time home buyer seminars as well as real estate office training in the state of new york she also received the super lawyer award in 2019 and 2020 this is a distinction given to only 2.5 percent of attorneys in the new york metro area uh, this was a cool episode because we get to break down how lawyers represent either the landlords when in court or how landlords represent the buyer or seller when it comes to purchasing or selling real rental or real estate in general. Uh, so this would be some good information for those of you looking to understand how do you properly prepare uh, to handle tenants or how do you make sure that you understand what you're looking at when you are purchasing properties. Uh, so please listen in on this one. I think this is a good episode from a different perspective. There's so many different avenues when it comes to real estate uh, that necessarily you don't have to be a master in, but you at least got to know a little bit about it and know who you need to go to to get it, the information. And Crystal is definitely one of those people that you can to get it. So thank you for listening. Please visit our site at www.richstateofmind.com where we provide content on real estate, personal finances, and self-development. Share your story and information by posting a blog on our site so that the Rich State of Mind community continues to grow in knowledge. You can also follow our Instagram page at rich underscore state brand to find out about exclusive offers and discount promotions for our apparel. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other outlets. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And thank you for listening. Hey, Crystal, welcome to Rich State of Mind. If you could please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, so thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so my name is Crystal Young. I am a real estate attorney. Um, I've been in the real estate field for about 20 years now, um, starting as a paralegal. And I worked about 10 years as a paralegal before I decided to go to law school. Um, as a paralegal, I was doing all the attorney's work. And I said, you know what, it's time to go to law school. And I went to law school, came out and decided to represent buyers and sellers in real estate transactions. And so what made you go into the real estate realm uh, vice any other branch when it comes to being an attorney? Yeah. So as a paralegal, I actually fell into working at a law firm that handled real estate transactions. But we actually handle real estate transactions on the other end. We represented big banks as they were foreclosing on people's homes. So I represented all of the big banks um, during the mortgage crisis, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, so we were, you know, it was a, a very busy law firm. And, you know, I was just on the other end of what I'm on now. Now I'm representing clients, you know, when they purchase, when they sell their homes. Um, 
they're usually not in foreclosure. Um, at that time, I was, you know, terrible stories of, you know, clients that were going through foreclosure and that were losing their homes. So that's actually what made me want to go to law school and now represent clients on the other end because, again, I was representing banks and, and it just, it, it was heartbreaking to see what was happening during the mortgage crisis. Hey, I can imagine. And I know at the end of the day, you know, a bank or, you know, any business that's trying to stay afloat, hey, look, it's just business. And the humane side of it sometimes, or a lot of times gets taken out of the picture. And so, yeah, you, you're, put, you're displacing a lot of families. So I can understand why you wanted to switch over. Uh, what, what would you say you learned being in, in that, on that side of the business though, when it came to uh, representing the banks? Yeah. So what I learned being on that side of the transaction is, you know, when you are seeking to purchase a home, you don't want to overextend yourself because that happened a lot. You know, you want to make sure that you you're planning um, for a rainy day. A lot of times it was um, a scenario where someone lost their job and they really had no plan, you know, to how can they stay afloat? So um, what I learn and what I teach the clients is that there are insurances you can kind of put in place in the case that you do lose your job, then, um, you know, there's, there's, there's mortgage insurance and, and different things that can be placed um, on the mortgage um, or on you personally, such that that will cover you in the case you lose your job. Awesome. And that's actually probably information a lot of people probably need to hear right now because of the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, I know a lot of people have been in a tough spot, landlords and home, just regular home, primary homeowners in a tough spot when it comes to that. So everybody's looking for some type of relief until everything uh, dies down. Uh, so, oof. yeah, that was a good one, actually. So I'm actually looking into that myself because I would like to be more educated because uh, for situations like this, unfortunately, right, sometimes it takes a bad scenario for somebody to benefit on their back end like hey this was my experience that I went through I don't want you to go through this so I would say for future reference these are the things you need to do yeah yeah it's very important to be educated when you are you know purchasing a home and that's what I like to do with my clients to educate them as they're even when they're selling their home but selling and purchasing all the things that I learned even ways to you know pay down your mortgage um, you take a 30 year loan, but you know, there are some ways to kind of pay that mortgage down so that you're not stuck for 30 years with a mortgage. You're actually paying money, a little bit extra money towards principal to pay it down a little quicker. Yeah. So those sorts of things are, are like important to me because of what I experienced again during my tenure as on the foreclosure end. Um, you know, I learned different things that would have helped a lot of people if they knew, um, you know, these small little tidbits. So I tell people usually um, if they when they ask about paying their mortgage down to look at the amortization table, usually you get it in the mail so you can look and see, all right, this is how much going towards principal, this is how much going towards interest. And then I know like some calculators I've seen where if you pay, you look at the, how much is going towards principal that month, you just pay an extra the same amount of that principal and you would have paid off an extra month of your mortgage. So that's one thing I've seen uh, people do. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's like, you know, when you're paying a mortgage, you're thinking about, well, you know, I'm, you know, I have just enough to pay my bills, my mortgage, my bills, but you don't realize like once you actually sign for your mortgage and you start to, you know, cook and eat in (laughs) and start to plan to pay this mortgage, you realize you actually do a lot of times have enough to even now save um, because you're kind of reorganizing your life. Like, you know, once you decide to purchase a property, that's, um, that's the, a lot of times the point in your life where you're like, okay, let me get myself together and like really look to see what I'm spending my money on. And once you start doing that and writing everything down, you realize that you can not only afford a house, but you can afford to save, put extra money towards principal and, you know, just, just seeking out ways to make maybe even some extra income so you can kind of pay down that mortgage and, and, and stay afloat. And so a good rule of thumb that I started living by because of Dave Ramsey was not to have a rent or mortgage that was more than 25% of my monthly income. Absolutely. I felt like that was a good rule of thumb because anything more than that, then you start to kind of feel a pinch because you still got, uh, you know, your utilities as well. So you you don't want to be house broke. Absolutely. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So what's your role when it comes to you being the uh, closing attorney? Uh, I only, like I said, when I was telling you earlier, before we started recording, I've only seen it when I'm, I talked to her, usually as a female, we talked for a little bit, I signed papers, but there's hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper. So I know there's more than just me, you know, you, we smile, you know, me and you smiling at each other, we signed and everybody's happy. So if you could break down that rule, I'd be appreciated. Yeah. So, so in the New York market, the role of a real estate attorney is to ensure you're legally protected when you're purchasing a home. So is this... Uh, dedicated to New York or to everywhere? Everywhere. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So I'm a New York attorney, so I can talk talk to, to talk about that. Um, some states, you know, a attorney is not even required when you purchase a home. Uh, the realtors uh, a lot of times prepare the contract and explain it to the clients. There's um, a title company that's involved, but in New York and where I am, my role is to ensure you're legally protected. So the seller's attorney prepares the contract and sends it over to me. I review the contract with my client and I send that contract out to the seller's attorney once it's signed by my client. At that time, the a uh, buyer then prepares a down payment check. They either go to the bank and get a certified check or just write a personal check. They can also wire their down payment. And then the seller signs. Once the seller signs, my role then changes to now I review title. So I order a title report and I make sure that there are no judgments, no liens on the home. I also make sure that you know, my clients don't have anything against them that's going to affect them from purchasing a home with the mortgage company. Um, Yeah, so that's my role. I then review title. And then my role after title is cleared is then to ensure that they understand what they're signing at the closing table. So I then work with the mortgage company. The mortgage company comes with a ton of documents, like you said, a lot of papers, right? So Maria's company comes with all the paperwork that will need to be signed, the note, the mortgage, affidavits, um, 
the amortization schedule that you mentioned. So I explain all those documents to the client, to the my buyer at the closing table, um, along with the title affidavit. So there are some things that you have to, you know, state, hey, I have no judgments, I have no liens, I have, you know, my if I have a current mortgage, it's not in default, things like that. So I explain to them like the legal ramifications of what they're signing. So that's my role as the real estate attorney. And just to make them feel as secure and comfortable as possible when you're buying and selling a home, like you have support, you have a team that's there to, you know, help you. You're not there alone, just like blindly signing what they say your life yes. away but you have someone that can actually explain what you're signing and that's been through the process themselves. And so uh, something to clarify, and maybe you can break it down a little bit more. So just because let's say I put down 25%, mm -hmm. I can still add another person to the title on signing on closing day, correct? Um, so are we referring to, you know, if you're taking a mortgage, because if you're taking a mortgage, the person that's on the mortgage is the same person that's on the deed in gotcha. the state of New York. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. So when you're, if you're taking a mortgage now, if you're purchasing the home all cash, then you can put, you know, whoever you like on your, on your deed. But if you're purchasing, utilizing a mortgage, then the persons that are on the mortgage are the same persons that are on the deed. Now the note is different. The note is the party that's actually owes the debt. So you can be on the note and owe the money to the bank, but you and I can be on the mortgage as the parties that will be what they call entitled. So that's how it works in New York. I can only speak to New York as a real estate attorney license in the state of New York. Understandable. And it sounds similar to how it works down here in Virginia as well. Uh, I just know that was a few questions that I was being um, asked about. And I was okay. like, hey, I can't, I can't speak for it. Like you said, I can't speak for every state. I yeah. can speak for my circumstances unless I actually like research it. But yeah. I wanted, wanted to go too. Because uh, I actually, you know, got introduced to you through Kevin. And so I'm assuming that y'all have y'all y'all work together on certain transactions. And so how does that work with the with between the relationship between a real estate agent, the title company, and then the attorney? Is a lot of it just, hey, Crystal, you know, I got this guy a person coming and needs to um close on a home, you know, I, I would like to use you, or is it he just likes to go through the, the title company? How does that connection work to where everybody kind of knows each other and is able to kind of uh, benefit from each other collectively. Yeah, definitely. So how it works in the New York market with the real estate agent. So Kevin Grimes is an amazing, amazing real estate agent that represents buyers and sellers in New York. So he then will have a client. He tells the client, hey, you know, you need a team. Sometimes, you know, when you're going to purchase your home, you don't realize kind of what it takes and who you need in place when you're purchasing a home. You just know, okay, I want to purchase. And maybe they'll start with Kevin. They'll say to Kevin, hey, I want to buy a home. Kevin will first tell them, hey, you need a pre-approval. So you know how much you qualify for before we go out. 
So he's going to ask them, hey, do you have a mortgage lender? If he doesn't have, if they don't have a mortgage lender, he may say, okay, well, I have, you know, three people that I'd like to refer you to. And then, you know, you do your own due diligence. And that's what happens as it relates to the attorney the home inspector, you know, so a lot of our clients, they have maybe an attorney, they'll ask a friend or family member and say, hey, I know you just bought a house. Do you have an attorney? Who's the attorney that represented you? Were they good? Okay, yes, I would like to use that attorney. Um, but when it comes to the real estate agent, the real estate agent is a lot of times the referral source, also the mortgage company, because you want to know if you even qualify for a mortgage. So yes. that's a, for the real estate attorney, that's a great source of our, our referral source. They're great um, as referral sources for real estate attorneys, because they uh, have direct contact with the buyer kind of like right from the start. Um, the, again, the mortgage lender, you know, you're issuing a pre-approval. So once you have a pre-approval, that mortgage lender may say, hey, and I have an attorney for you. Same with Kevin as a realtor. Hey, I have an attorney for you. And that's kind of where I come into play. So we awesome. all work together. A lot of uh, realtors, attorneys, we have like our team that we work with. Like I know with a buyer, you know, someone came to me and said, hey, I want to purchase a home. I know that I have a collective group of realtors, mortgage professionals, and we want to kind of link them to people on the team, you know, people yeah. that you know and trust and you have their cell phone number and you're able to kind of reach out and, you know, they'll be great with your client because, of course, your referral sources are a reflection on you. Uh, this is true. This is you know that <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like, well, you sent me over to this guy. Oh. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Never want that to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So when it when it, I saw in your bio that you've also dealt with the firm. I don't know if it used, it was you specifically uh, representing uh, landlords, homeowners. And so, yes. what advice do you have? Because I've been to court for well, my my property manager been to court about maybe four times in the lifetime of me being a landlord what advice do you would you give to landlords when it comes to when you represent them at like certain things you've noticed that they did wrong or did right that helped in their favor or maybe some things that they were doing that you was like yeah that's not really you being a good landlord and the tenant it was in a tenant's favor um, it's so like in preparation for court or just like in general, like if you're so, a landlord, these are the things you should do. So in preparation for court, for sure. I'm glad you yeah. made it more specific and then we'll mm -hmm. go into the general aspect. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So the first, the most important thing as a landlord, if you're looking to maybe evict your client or maybe sue them for, you know, the, the non-payment, the first thing you must have adequate notice. So there are requirements depending how long your tenant has been in the property, how many days notice you have to provide to your tenant. So it could be 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, depending on how long they've resided in your property. Um, so notice is number one. Second, you want to make sure you document everything. So if you know, your tenant is paying, say, by cash, you want to make sure you're giving them a receipt. So if you have to go in front of the judge, you can prove 
what payments were missed, what payments were, you know, when things were paid, your records aren't kind of all over the place where, you know, you're coming to court with just like, you know, a bag full of just like post-it notes, you know, just yeah. like, hey, you know, your honor, this is, these are the, 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 the late payments. It just doesn't even kind of look right. You know, the judge is going to say, you know, well, you're not even keeping accurate records. So how can I make a decision based on what you've provided? So yes. everything should be documented in writing. If there's any agreements as to, you know, if uh, something needs to be fixed, um, you want to document the day in which, you know, you receive the call and the day in which you, you know, now have made the repair. Um, so, so again, everything in writing, proper notices should be sent to the tenant when things aren't being done as planned, again, when payments aren't made, things like that. And then all, and then when you've, tell me some of your experiences sitting in court with uh, your clients, uh, some things that you noticed that you were like, hmm, you know, if I was a landlord, I would have did it this way. Yeah. Um, so when you're, when I'm sitting in court and I'm, when I'm with what my landlord, right. <laughs> um, so just having, again, like how I mentioned, all your documentation must be in order for sure. Because, you know, I've had a lot of scenarios where my, where um, the landlord has said, you know, the, the, he hasn't paid in, you know, five months, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then the tenant comes to court and the tenant has like all this documentation just showing the payments that were made. And I'm like, what do you mean? You, got, you have the payments and like, show me the bank accounts. He's like, you know, and it's just, you have to be very organized as a landlord. You have to have all your, you know, your, your I's dotted and your T's crossed because your tenant, a lot of times the tenant know the rules and the yeah. tenant know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So and we know this. So that's why a lot of people are fearful for being landlords because they know that the tenant um, will come and ensure that they're in that property without making payments for the next two years and make your life a living, you know what? Um, so, so you just want to make sure that again, everything's documented and that you really know what you're doing. You want to make sure you know what the laws are and when the laws change, because yeah. um, at the, you know, right before the pandemic started, they changed some of the laws as it relates to notice. Um, Initially, and for many years, you could serve a tenant with 30 days notice um, if you wanted to evict them for non-payment. Um, and over time, that changed depending on how long the tenant had resided in, within the property. So it was like, okay, it was 30 days if the tenant had been there for a year or less. And then, you know, if it was two years, it was 60 days and three plus years, 90 days. So a lot of landlords didn't know that change. So it's important as a landlord to just keep yourself in the know as to yeah. when laws have changed and make sure you have a good real estate attorney on your team to keep you updated if you have any questions for us it was we could not evict them based off of a covid related situation so so the tenant's going to say i lost my job because of COVID. of course but what we could do is i can't, i don't have to renew my lease 
And so that's basically what we've been doing. Um, I was explaining to Kevin a couple of episodes ago with one of the tenants, what I did was I helped her sign up for a uh, rent, rent relief program and mm-hmm. it took care of four months worth of rent. And within those four months, I used that time t- as a, we'll say a uh, litmus test to see if she was going to get a job while she was living there for free and you know, right. my mortgage was taken care of and she didn't. So I was mm-hmm. like, all right, her release is up in March. Go ahead and put the notice in. You got that leeway, you know, thanks to COVID, you had the moratorium, couldn't do, really do anything. I hope right. you signed up for this relief program so I can still get taken care of. And then you still didn't really get a job. So yeah, you got to go. So that's kind of how we're working. And I know people are like probably banging themselves overhead. Anybody that did anything more than a 12 month lease, because this right. kind of started back in March and yeah. some of my tenants, that's when they got their leases were in March income right. tax timeframe. Of course. So I, I feel bad for any landlord that did like 36 months, you know, 24 right. months right. leases. Right. Never a good decision. Yeah. And so down here, we do that a lot because it's military. It's a lot yeah. of military. Okay, that makes so sense. So we just lease them out until they, they PCS. Mm-hmm. But uh, other, if they were not, I, w- I wouldn't advise it. Of course not. Yeah, there's always, you know, certain scenarios where you just have to make that judgment call and that business decision. But ideally, you know, you would renew their lease, you know, once a year um, so that, you know, if things change, you want to put a new tenant in there, you're able to do so. Oh, I said, I forgot to mention too. So the, so the one thing that I would do to get people to sign more than one year, I guess this is once COVID goes down and this was pre-COVID, I would uh, take off $100 off the first month's rent and then $100 or $200 off the last month's rent to get them locked in for a longer period of time if I thought that they were a consistent tenant. And yeah. so instant that instant gratification on the front and back end, because I'm thinking, you're thinking, Atlanta, you're thinking long ball. I got you for 18 or 24 months. That's 18, 24 months. I don't have to worry about, you know, the mortgage and, you know, obviously some type of cash flow. Right. And that actually brings up a good point, too, and makes me think about when we say put everything in writing. That's also when it comes to the lease. You know, a lot of um, I've had a lot of scenarios where the landlord generated their own lease, which is 100 percent fine. You know, it's not no requirement for a attorney to prepare your lease on your behalf, but they've generated a lease that, you know, maybe they found online. So it didn't contain all the provisions that they actually wanted in the lease. Yeah. So now they want to, you know, appear in court and sue based on that lease, but that lease doesn't have the provision that's required to now even start a lawsuit. You know, yep. oh, I told them that they had to do X, but okay, provide me with a copy of the lease. And when I look in the lease, there's nothing that even seats that within the lease. So therefore it's an oral agreement and we know what <laughs> what happens with oral agreements yeah and they never happen law yeah exactly so yeah so. i'm glad you brought that up too because when it when it does come to leases i've had to refer back to that a lot yes. to remind myself right. what i you know what i need to do or to, to remind the tenant hey these are the things you were supposed to be doing right. and it's there's not there's no such thing as going too far into detail in a lease as far as Absolutely. what i've learned 100%. because when i when I came to trying to uh, charge one of my tenants for early termination fee, yeah. my lease, this is what I get for dealing with my first property, man. It was so vague. Uh, it said, uh, you know, if the member cuts their lease early, the price, the fee will be negotiated between the landlord and the tenant. That's all it said. 
And so that's free range to be for us to settle at $900 versus the 3000 I'm supposed to get. Right. So immediately after that, I said, hey, we need an addendum. I want all tenants to sign. This is what the fee will be. I think it's two months is the most I'm able to uh, do down here, two or three yeah. months. That makes and, sense. and then, you know, that's that was the law from there on. And so sometimes you got to learn from, right. you know, certain situations. But anybody that's got any uh, leases like that, look it up and make sure your early termination fee is right. very descriptive on what, because that makes that tenant think twice. Like, I'm not trying to pay $3,200. I'll just, you know, wing it out until the end of the lease. Right. Or, this is very vague because you mentioned something earlier. These tenants know all the rules. Oh, and 100%. it's so interesting how they put so much energy into trying to figure out ways not to pay. Yeah. Uh, or and know right. all the rules and yep. the loopholes versus uh, taking the time to uh, make sure that everything's taken care of. So I always think that's so funny because right. they'll 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 they have no problem battling. It's like where was all this energy and how yeah. do you have the money to get a lawyer? Like right. what the heck? One hundred percent. Yeah, they're planning. Oh, that's the truth. So I have a, a particular situation, and maybe this will apply to a lot of people, where I have a lawyer. She she offered to uh, offer me a flat rate mm -hmm. to go after somebody for rent uh, versus an hourly rate. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so most real estate attorneys in the state of New York charge a flat rate when it comes to a residential transaction. There are some attorneys that charge an hourly rate, which is perfectly fine if there's yeah. a client that will pay it. Um, but, you know, a real estate transaction, there's a lot of communication kind of like back and forth. So, um, you know, to document the time it would take to kind of be on the phone and maybe, you know, the client feeling kind of rushed, you know, if they have questions because, you know, they're being charged hourly, um, yeah. you know, that just wouldn't be ideal. It's, a, you know, it's really the biggest purchase of your life. So if you have questions and, you know, you need information, that's kind of something you want to be able to reach out to your real estate attorney or, you know, just to, to, to get those questions answered without feeling like, you know, this is a billable call. So, um, so yeah, definitely a flat rate is really what, you know, I think a lot of the buyers look for when they're looking for a real estate attorney. And it's really what we, um, how we set up our fee structure really in the state of New York when it comes to a residential real estate transaction. At and least so yeah, yeah. And so when it comes to, all right, you you know, let's say I want to I want to go after rent and then I want to start garnishing this old tenant's paycheck. Uh, can, you, can you break down that that process? And then is this is it easy? Or is it hard for that to happen? You know, as far as the, the landlord getting their money back from the garnishments, how you're able to track these people down, um, stuff like that. Yeah, so it's. Yeah, so it's interesting. When you go to court um, and, and the court now issues a judgment against the tenant, um, you now have to take another step. So it's not like, you know, you go to court and the court makes a decision like, okay, you owe two months rent and now you have to vacate by X date. It's still another process. And the process is to have, like you said, wage garnishment or to uh, put a lien 
now file that lien against the actual individual. Um, that's a process. It's sometimes mention that part too. Yeah, it's sometimes a lengthy process because um, what you first have to do is get their, you know, find out their whereabouts. Um, so now you've essentially kicked them out of your home. You know, you've evicted them, and now you're like, okay, well, where are you going? You know, and and finding that <laughs> information out. <laughs> Because every judgment has to be t- attached to not just the person, but like to a address. And they have to be now served with the judgment paperwork. And then they also have to, um, th- you also have to know who they're employed with, their employer. So going back to um, being a landlord, that's very important to um, when you're, um, kind of vetting the tenants. Part of that vetting process, I believe you should have a application that contains like family members contact information. So you can kind of, you know, in the case you need to kind of reach out or figure it out, maybe then you have, you know, some, you know, information, emergency contact information. There you go. There Yeah, emergency contact information where you can kind of maybe reach out and find out their whereabouts. Um, Of course, you want their employment information because, you know, you're just going to want that anyway when you're looking to see if if this is a good tenant. Um, And now utilizing that employment information to now garnish those wages. And you have to do that most times through a company. And so you're now, you have to take into account that that company is going to charge. So is the judgment worth it? If we're talking maybe $3,000 in back rent, now the, the cost to now locate the tenant, the cost to hire a company to now garnish those wages or to find out who the employer is and take those steps. I don't know. Sometimes it's not even worth it. I know. Say again. Have you had to garnish wages and have you been through that process? So that's the process I'm in the middle of right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, back about six grand, I would say. Okay. And so she offered me 855 flat rate. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'm assuming there's no other extra fees after that. If, if I'm paying 855 to get about six grand, that makes sense to me. And then the, after that is taken care of three to six months will be the garnishment process uh, to get everything back. Uh, I've been told like a lot of times though, you know, when it comes to certain settlements uh, or even garnishments, maybe sometimes you don't get all the money back, but it's better than nothing. Uh, Cause I've heard people out of spikes quit their jobs and then you can't, you don't get anything, but I'm glad you brought up the lean part because I have heard of good stories where you put a lien on people on like their homes, mm-hmm. you know, certain things that they own and they can't sell that until they pay you back. Right. Of course, a hundred percent. And I would like to see somebody abandon their house just to not pay a $5,000 lien. Right. (laughs) Exactly. 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 And so, but a lot of times we're talking about a tenant. And so your tenant has now, you know, unless they went to go buy a house, most times they don't have a house that they can attach that lien to. Um, So you know, there's been situations, though, where, you know, that lien was 
now attached to the leader attached to a house like it was now discovered that hey they have bought a house and now that lien was attached to the house and now when they sell the house hopefully in the next maybe 10 years, years 30 years you know then maybe then at that point you get you know your your six thousand yeah. dollar judgment yeah just just give yeah. it to me after close at closing yeah, exactly. 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 So, and that happens a lot. You know, I see that representing buyers and sellers. Um, those liens are, of course, credit card liens, now traffic tickets, even red light tickets are now being wow. made judgments. Uh-huh. And they have to be now paid at closing. So um, it's interesting sometimes to see when I'm representing a seller, just um, some of the liens that come up and they're like, oh, that's from like 20 something, years ago, or, you know, and, but, you know, that's, there is a statute of limitations, however, on some judgments. So, um, you know, so, so a lot of times, you know, if they're over maybe 10 years, they are now deemed expired, but sometimes they still have to pay them. And the person that put the lien against them is no longer here. So, you know, it just becomes a disaster. So this, the lesson in all of this is just to pay your bills. <laughs> yes. So you, you made a good point. So, you know, a lot of the tenants will not have a house at that point. What else can you put a lien on? What else have you seen people put a lien on? Yeah, really only homes. <laughs> really <laughs> only home. um, you can put a lien, uh, you know, liens follow the person, but they're usually attached to a property address. So I've seen liens on a, a person at a address, you know, and is it them? I, I don't know, you know? And so, because what's interesting, say when you're selling your property, there um, we, when you're buying or selling, there's a title report and the title report pulls liens according to the name. So sometimes I'm going through the liens with my clients and I'm like, have you ever lived at this address or that address? And they're like, no, it's not me. And sometimes you're like, sure that's not you <laughs> you sure it's not you and like you can kind of tell like but it's attached to like an address that is not the address they're selling so um so th so that comes up a lot that comes up a lot so you can attach a judgment to a person by way of a address, as long as there is a address associated with them. Sometimes it's not particularly their address. And so, yeah, but I see there's a- where they're currently living, like a family member's address. Yeah, family, and that's where that emergency uh, contact comes from. So that was something I just learned just now as a good reference, if God forbid you're trying to chase down a tenant after the fact. But it all does start with the vetting process. Yeah. Um, me and Kevin were also talking about before we will get a land uh, a tenant, and we're vetting them. Go to the place the place where they live currently, and looking, seeing how they live and take care of the property uh, that they're currently at, and make that decision. Uh, shoot, even talk to the other that landlord if they happen to be renting. Talk to the landlord and ask for their rent rules. Yeah. See if they've been uh, paying rent, stuff like that. Because everybody's gonna have a sob story, particular situation. Uh, we yes, get a lot. Something yeah. happened. Yes. Uh, I, I get a lot of, uh, especially nowadays. Uh, you know, when I 
get these uh, referrals, a lot of people talk about how they had a judgment, but it wasn't their fault. And I'm just like, how does, I don't know situations where you could have a judgment against you and it's not your fault. No, no, not at all. I don't either. So okay. <laughs> don't look to me. Because I, I, I hear it so often. I'm just like, well, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe these things happen to people. Because to be honest with you, I always feel like as the landlord, I'm the one fighting my case a lot of times. Right. Because maybe the idea or the stigma of slumlords is still around. So yeah. I always feel like I have to prove myself. So when people send me messages saying, you know, I got a judgment against me, it wasn't fair. I'm just like, well, usually it's like the landlord fighting the battle. So right. of course. I, I usually, yeah. So even though Virginia is a very landlord supportive state, though, I, every time, you know, I've had to go to court, uh, a judge, I feel like has been fair, fair wow. to the tenant, and, and fair to the tenant and to me, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, do I want to wait another 30 days to deal with this individual? No, but it gives that time for every, a reset button for everybody to act accordingly. And then you'll see what happens from there, you know? So, yeah. because I had one tenant that was, uh, had to pay escrow. I think she was using her tenant assertion. And so she was putting money in escrow and, you know, we handled all the repairs, but she did, she stopped putting money in escrow. So when we went back to court, that's when he was like, hey, you, you know, landlord ha- handle everything. You stop playing money escrow, you got to go. I was, oh, so yeah. And that's the other, that's the only other situations where I've been able to have tenants get out before they lease during this uh, rent moratorium is if they put, do something like a tenant assertion and go to court that the judge has been kicking them out if they're not paying rent in those situations, if they amplify it, but they got to initiate it. It's weird. Like they have to initiate it and make a big issue out of it. Right. I'm showing what I'm supposed to be doing and they're not putting money in escrow. Then the the, the judge can say, all right, go. Uh, But I do, I feel for a lot of landlords because it's a, if you didn't have money for a rainy day or you didn't vet a particular type of tenant, I can imagine how it's been really hard. And I don't understand why they keep extending the moratorium. I just don't understand the, the economics behind it because I don't know anybody that has 18 months worth of reserve for vacancy. Right. Of course. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's crazy. It's, I do feel for um, the tenants that are suffering in this pandemic for sure. And, and anyone that's suffering during this pandemic, it's, it's hard, you know, they don't, I, I mean, from one aspect, it's like, it's just, you know, to live in someone's house kind of rent-free without any kind of recourse, it just sounds a, a bit absurd. But then on the other end, you know, now you evict someone, where are they, where are they going, you know? And so, um, the, you know, the, the shelters are already inundated with, you know, people that have, you know, maybe lost their job or been, you know, put out on the street. So, I think, yeah, it's it's just a difficult situation from from both ends. So yeah, yeah. And I'm not an economist, but my thought process would be: I completely understand. Do not kick people out because you'll spread COVID more, or I mean, and you'll be displacing 40 million people. Right. So, like I said, I'm not an economist, so what I might be saying, economists may be like, "Well, that's not how it works." Right. But when you send the stimulus checks, uh, or when you had the funding for some type of stimulus do it to where you keep people from not being kicked out. So the $600 or the $1,200 people are getting, 
send it straight to the the you know real estate agencies that cover the you know rental properties or the, the or that individual landlord right i would think that the, the priority i'm thinking is making sure people don't get displaced yes bef- then food and then everything else right but if you give somebody a 600 $600 there's right. nothing obligating them to pay their rent for that month. It just, right. it goes back into the economy and people will spend it, right. but it doesn't help. I don't think it helps the best with maintaining order because here's the thing, after all this is said and done, well, right. currently people are foreclosing and going bankrupt. But when it, when the fallout happens, me and Kevin go back, go back and forth about this all the time. I think there's a particular fallout where okay, granted, we're not kicking out any tenants, but right. you have a lot of landlords that are foreclosing. So where are the tenants going? Because if I'm going to buy a new home from a foreclosure, I'm not right. keeping those tenants that ain't been paying rent. So now right. they're displaced anyways. That's how, that's how I kind of look at it. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, it's, uh, again, it's, it's such a difficult kind of uh, time we're in that you really don't know what, you know, rhyme or, or, or reason. You really don't don't know what the best thing to do is. So <laughs> I, I have nothing to contribute to that. <laughs> you know, this is, it, this, is, this is where we are, you know? So, yeah. Um, and unfortunately we're not in the position to make, you know, the choices. Um, so. And I ain't saying my choices would be the best. It's just my opinion on it. I, I kind of like to go about back and forth about it. But yeah. uh, all in all, what is your rich state of mind? Why do you do what you do every day? I noticed that you're busy, you're a hard worker, and you've been doing this for years. And so with that is a special type of drive and passion that I noticed. So if you could please explain that. Yeah, definitely. So kind of as I mentioned right from the start is that, you know, I worked in foreclosure for years and just seeing what happened to people as they overextended themselves or, you know, entered into, you know, adjustable rate mortgages. And, you know, then when that time came for that rate to kind of increase, you know, they could no longer make those payments. So my, I feel like my role is to ensure that what happened then doesn't happen now um, as much as I can. So my role is really to like educate and just see, you know, everyone just kind of buy homes, you know, generate that generational wealth um, to ensure they're knowledgeable of, you know, the things that are in place to ensure they can actually pay their mortgage to ensure that they're getting the proper insurance. If something, you know, were to happen, if they were to lose their job. Um, So my rich state of mind, what keeps me motivated is just seeing people winning and seeing people prosper and, and really living their best lives. And, and that definitely that's through investing and, and, and purchasing homes and, and definitely, um, being in a place where they can live a fulfilled life. I think I feel like I'm inadvertently building a team in New York because Kevin, I talked to Kevin, he's a real estate agent. You're, you know, real estate attorney. Uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Awesome. Yeah, Mary and I, we're from, uh, we're actually from New York. And, okay. Uh, but the, the, the market is so expensive out there. And, um, but 
I kind of I can appreciate it though because I feel like the the oh, speaking of appreciation, the appreciation really goes up in that area, especially if you can hit it uh, really like Harlem. If you bought, bought Harlem, maybe 10, yeah. 18 years. Oh, for sure. Right, I'd be a million multimillionaire. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. but that's happening in in pocket neighborhoods. It's happening all over, you know, the the United States. So you just have to kind of do your research and see, you know, what the trends are. So, you know, if if you can, you know, do it where you you are in Virginia, then I know um I, I know anyone can do it anywhere they are. So it doesn't matter, you know, if you're in New York or Virginia or anywhere else. You just watch the trends and you see what's happening and you can use New York, like you said, Harlem as an example of that and see what happened there and kind of mirror that wherever you are. Well, I appreciate your time, Crystal. Like you gave a wealth of information because I needed to hear that. I'm pretty sure other people needed to hear that. I like it when you get information that you didn't know you needed until you heard it. That's awesome. So, yeah, it's always awesome. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you.